Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Joining me today, he's a daytime Emmy Award winner, game show, TV host, author, the host with the most podcast hosts. It's Todd Newton. How are you doing today, Todd? Alex, I'm rocking and rolling, man. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do first with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Well, I grew up in the great city of St. Louis, uh, right on the banks of the muddy Mississippi River. And, uh, you know, wonderful family life, wonderful Midwestern, suburban, two-story house on a cul-de-sac. Mom stayed home with us. Dad went out and hustled and earned a living. Uh, Me and my younger brother. Uh, very, very close to my grandparents growing up. Uh, I, I, I really credit my grandparents, uh, my grandmother specifically on my mother's side for introducing me to the show business bug. Uh, she was a comedian and a little vaudeville in her history. My grandfather on my dad's side was a uh, radio broadcaster for a while. I actually have here in my studio, I have his diploma from the Midwestern School of Broadcasting. He graduated in January of 97. It's pretty, uh, pretty inspiring to look at every now and then, but it was a very healthy, uh, very healthy childhood. You know, I raised a little hell as a teenager, as, as all teenagers will, but I, I was always very focused on what I wanted to do, at least what I wanted to do at the time, and uh, really believed wholeheartedly in taking whatever steps were necessary to get where I wanted to be. You talked about your grandfather and your grandmother, how they got you into the radio show business. Was there ever a thought that this is what you wanted to do as a career path, or was it just something to find as a hobby? No, it was always much, much more than a hobby. Um, specifically, it was Bob Barker during the day and Johnny Carson at night that really lit the fire. I had always watched my grandmother and the way she could command an audience and own a room. And I liked the way she made people feel. It was very evident to me as people would come up to her and uh, there was just a, a real rapport with her audience, if you will. So subconsciously, that was taking root. But specifically for television, you know, I, I would watch her watch Bob Barker or my mom watch Bob Barker. Or of course, I watched Bob when I would stay home from school. And I saw that Bob was being himself or perhaps a slightly exaggerated version of himself. And people loved it. At night, Johnny Carson and his monologue, even when I was too young to stay up for it, would cause father to laugh in a way that he only did when he was watching Johnny. My father's got a great sense of humor, but there was a special Johnny Carson laugh. And same with Johnny. You know, Johnny was the master of letting the real stars shine. And those are his words. Uh, from an interview that I that I saw many, many years ago. But it didn't matter if it was Frank Sinatra or a nine-year-old girl that could play them with her toes. He made that person the biggest person in the world. And Johnny was being a slightly exaggerated version of, them, of himself. So before I even knew, Alex, what a host was, uh, before I even knew what a DJ was or a radio personality, I saw these guys. And that is what I wanted to do. I just had to label it and uh, figure out how to get there. 
As you were growing up, were you finding these personality traits in you that you ended up having as you were being a host later in your career? Yes, that's a great question. I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that, but yes, uh, in a high school, maybe even middle school, I started to notice that I was a hell of a storyteller compared to other kids my age. I started to notice that girls liked storytellers <laughs> uh, and you know as 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 anyone male or female will tell you whenever the sex that they're interested in is gravitated towards something you're doing yep. you tend to really focus on that so once i started to realize that hey you know the cute girls kind of like being around me at lunch because of the way i spin a tail I worked even harder to spin more colorful tales, you know, but yeah, I, I realized early on that, uh, that I wasn't afraid of attention. I realized early on that, that it actually energized me and fired me up. And I think the only thing I had to do at that point was find a way for it to make me some money <laughs> before it could become a career. Do you have any favorite moments of being in St. Louis as I'm from St. Louis and living there all my life? Is there any memories that you have that you remember to this date? Oh, yeah. I didn't know you were from St. Louis. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, of course, man. I mean, you know, I, I started my career there um, working on the radio at a very young age and being able to go down to Laclede's Landing and mm -hmm. see all these great bands. And um, oh, I, I mean, so many well, now that now that I know you're from St. Louis, you understand it. It, um, you know, it's a very big, small town. You know, it's a, it's a thriving metropolis. And back in the '80s, '90s, the time that I'm talking about, it was an incredible radio market. I believe we were top twenty there for a while, which meant. Uh, for people that aren't as in, geeked out about radio as I am, or you are maybe, uh, when you're a top 20 market, you're getting all the top acts coming through. Mm -hmm. You're getting uh, every major comedian and you're getting big movie premieres and things are really happening there. So to be on the radio during that time was quite a thrill, quite a rush. And the radio station that I worked for, it was a real uh, tightly knit family. We knew we were doing something great. Uh, we had a great morning show. We had a great midday show. You know, our midday personality has been in Philadelphia now for 25, 30 years, and he's still killing it. Uh, we were just all, and, and we were all cognizant of what was happening. You know, we knew that we were the, we, we were the hot thing on the air at the time, you know, now FM radio doesn't mean anything. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's all but dead. And I know that my radio friends, you know, are probably uh, going to jump to defend it and they're welcome to do so, but the numbers are the numbers. It's dead. It's dying. Everything is about what we're doing right here. It's about streaming and, and video and on demand, but, um, all the memories that I have of, of staying out late, coming home when the sun was, was, was just peeking up in the sky from the east side, you know, and, and um, just that real Midwestern sense of values. Uh, that's not a cliche. It's very true. Uh, I just ordered myself a sweatshirt. A friend of mine pointed it out to me online. It says St. and Lewis. And I'm like, that pretty much says it all. You know, it's a, now I see your shirt, by the way. I just noticed it. But that says it all. St. Louis was a power town. It was a rock and roll town. It was a loud town. It was a gritty town. 
And uh, it was a great place to be from. You know, now that I've lived all over and traveled all over, it's nice to say that my roots are uh, are back in the Gateway City. It's definitely have evolved since then. I mean, it's growing every single time I go downtown. But you talked about radio, and I moved to like mid Missouri, Columbia, and. I was trying to find radio stations. I was like, I need my radio stations that I took from St. Louis to match what I'm doing there. And there was nothing like it. So when I moved back, I'm like, oh, I have the same radio stations again. Because yeah. I grew up and like my dad used to play like 94.7 KC90. KC, yeah. And all that. And that's what I grew up listening to. And my friends are like, how do you like that stuff? It's been given to me from my family. So well, KC95 still is one of the premier rock and roll radio stations in the United States, hands down. And you can ask, uh, you can ask any rock musician that, that sold their share of records. They'll tell you that KC played an instrumental part in their career because they did radio right. They still do, but they, they, I mean, in its heyday, KC was, was untouchable. But yeah, and you know, I've been very fortunate in radio. You know, I went from St. Louis to Los Angeles and then I was syndicated in New York City and then I had a couple of of syndicated nationwide shows. But yeah, I mean, as far as um as far as the actual thrill of of potting up the microphone, you know, those those nights on the radio on 106.5 were some of the best for me. Yep. As you were getting older, did you have any inspirations or someone that motivated you growing up? Yeah, well, there were there were some radio guys locally. Uh, there was a there was a cat named Jimmy Page, the Nighttime Rage, uh, who was on the old KWK in St. Louis, who was an outstanding FM radio personality, outstanding, truly one of the best I've heard anywhere. And and I, uh, my parents were very very cool, very lenient as far as allowing me to have my stereo blasted pretty pretty high while I was supposed to be doing my homework. But the reason that I did that was not for the music. I couldn't have cared less about the music of the 80s. I was never a fan of Duran Duran or Adam Ant, you know. But the the voices that came on the radio were stellar. They were exciting. They really lit a fire inside of me. And when I got to meet some of these personalities later on, they ne- they didn't disappoint. They were everything that I I'd hoped they'd be and and more. Uh, Jimmy Page, the Nighttime Rage, was one. There was an urban radio personality uh, on the old radio station in St. Louis, Soul sixty three, named Gentleman Jim Gates, who was oh man, but he had these voice this voice that was just incredible. I mean, we used to call him Brass Balls because it was such a deep voice and and, and he could just relate. Uh, there was another guy named the Real Jr. And then uh, Chuck Nasty, the Nasty Man, came to a radio station that I later worked at called Hot 97, who ended up becoming a, a very good friend and was the one that got me hired uh, at in Los Angeles uh, on the radio because he went to L.A. And uh, when I moved out there, he went to the station manager and said, hey, you should put this kid on. He's He's not bad. So. All of these guys, and I cherry pick, just like I do in my television hosting. I find people that I really admire, Johnny Carson, Bob Barker, Richard Dawson, some Gene Rayburn, you know, and I kind of mix them up. The main ingredient, of course, being me, uh, because I want to be the best me I can be. But there's, you know, I'd, I'd be I'd be lying to you and your listeners if I said there wasn't sprinkles of all these greats, both on the radio and on television, blended into that cocktail. 
As you were getting older, go, heading towards college or their path in the radio business, what was your going through your mind? Were you focused on college or you focused on the career path that you wanted to go on? Career path. Uh, I have always been, um, uh, and, and I still am, even with my own children, I, I, I preach the benefits of experience over education. Um, I have never actually just on, on the host with the most my, on my podcast, the host with the most, I just interviewed a gentleman by the name of Travis Rosbach, who is the creator of hydro flask, the, the water bottles that okay. you now see everywhere. And his story is incredible how he took $10,000, turned it into a $1 billion company, but his quote, and I want to credit him for this because it's far too genius for me to come up with on my own, but his quote is he never wanted to be feel like he was being kept in a box. And what is a classroom? A classroom is a box, yep. a very dull colored box with people filled with people that don't want to be there telling you that you have to do things you don't want to do. Read this chapter, finish this assignment. That's not for me. It's never been for me. And uh, I, I, I believe I, I did attend college a couple of years, but only so that I could be qualified for internships. I just wanted to do internships and I wanted to work at these radio stations and do the work that other people didn't want to do. Uh, you want me to organize the prize closet? I'll do it. You want me to wash the radio station van? I'll do it. You want me to fold radio station t-shirts? I'll do it. But I just wanted to be in position to strike if an opportunity came my way. And it does. I don't care what you do. If you hang in there long enough and you are present, body and mind present, you're going to recognize an opportunity sooner or later. And then it's your responsibility to pounce. You may not be the most talented. You may not be the most qualified. You may not be the oldest. You may not be the youngest. But I will tell you this. If you're the first to pounce, you're going to make an impression. And that's what I did. And that's what I've done my entire career up until, you know, up to a point where, um, uh, what was required of me kind of shifted a little bit, but, um, but yeah, it, it was always about getting in front of that camera or getting behind that microphone much more than reading chapter eight for a quiz on Friday. <laughs> I totally agree. And I think that's always a conversation that's coming up is do people rather get those experience and get out early or do they want to finish? Cause I look at myself, I graduated, but not a lot that I've learned I'm utilizing today. And like, yeah. I didn't learn how to be a podcast host. I learned it on the go through Google, YouTube videos. And I think that's been the best learning experience for me is actually getting out there and learning everything. So I kind well, of- te technology has changed everything, as you know, Alex. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly a different world from, and I've got many years on you, but it, it's a different world than when I was, college age, you know, there really wasn't um, a, a more credible way to pursue a career than to go to a university, you know, but now things, things are very, very different. There's not a university in the world that doesn't offer online courses that you can choose a la carte and only pay and spend time on the courses that interest you. Yeah. Um, 
you know, like you said, YouTube, I, I too, I, I'm all over. I, I love YouTube. I, I just uh, mounted a television on my wall. Thanks to a YouTube video. I reprogrammed uh, my car keys with, with a YouTube video. Everything is available on YouTube. And that's, if you want to watch it, if you want to read it, well, you've got even more available to you. Yeah. All you have to do is Google it, but yeah, this is a, a wonderful time to be someone of 17, 18, 19 years of age where everything is available to you and nobody puts limits on you anymore. The fact that um, 19-year-old people are, are forced to pay forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year to go to a dated university where the curriculum is, is 20 years past its prime is criminal to me. It's criminal. And I can't help but think that evolution will just do away with that altogether. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever because those 18 to 22 years, those are the years where you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. You should be out taking risks. You should be out falling on your face and getting back up and saying, okay, well, that didn't work. Now let's find something that does. So I love the shift that I see happening. I just wish it was happening a little bit faster. Talk about the challenges you faced during your radio career. What, how, how did it go mentally and how did you keep yourself going and not quitting? Well, I, I think the number one challenge was everybody thought it would be cool to do that. And they're right. It, it is very cool. It's one of the coolest gigs I could ever imagine having. Uh, but as far as mentally, there was never a doubt in my mind that I was always going to be pouring all of my efforts into it. Never. I never had a plan B. There was never anything else that I could rationally envision myself doing Mm -hmm. for any amount of time sitting in an office not a chance uh working for someone else in that boss employee of course i had general managers and program directors and executive producers and things like that absolutely but having to report to someone who was you know probably frustrated after 30 years of service not a chance So I think, you know, when you use the word challenge, it doesn't really apply here because uh, I never saw that as being a possibility Um, to fail there just was not going to happen. And regardless of what you do, I've seen that same trait in uh, in a lot of people. I have buddies of mine who crush it in the sales world, you know, whether it be in technology or uh, I don't know, in the medical field, they're, they're great. And they're so, so very talented in their chosen field. And there's nothing else they could do. There's nothing else they would want to do. Uh, same with, I have a friend who's career military and, you know, that kind of structure, as much as I love our military, the men and women there. And I, I love what it provides to someone who enters the military and chooses that as a career. The reason I didn't was because I'm not cut out for that. I couldn't have done it. But when it comes to this and talking into one of these or looking into one of these, I can do it all day long, all day long. So I never saw it as a challenge. Um, I saw it as a quest to do it as best as I could possibly do it to entertain the people that were giving me the gift of tuning in or, or 
downloading or subscribing. They're the boss. They're the ones I really owe it all to. And I just wanted to continue to grow and evolve and, um, and master this field that I loved so much. Was there ever a certain topic that you liked talking about when you were doing your own show or being a part of a show? You know, it's, it's the same today with the host with the most podcast. If a, if a topic or person comes across my path that lights a special kind of interest in me, that makes me want to research it or them a little bit more, that's what I like to talk about. But I, I, I pretty much, I'm pretty much open to, I, I can find good conversation in just about anything. Politics don't interest me and religion doesn't interest me, but I do love uh, growth. I love technology. I love philosophy. I love uh, literature. I love art of all kinds, musicians. You know, with my podcast now, I, I've interviewed a lot of musicians and I never play a single note of their music on the show because people can go to iTunes and download everything this woman or this man has ever recorded. You can do that on your own, but I want to introduce you to the person that's behind that music. In a couple of weeks, I have this incredible blues singer saxophonist named Deanna Bogart. We're actually doing a, a charity event together in uh, Chicago uh, later this month. And when I, when I was introduced to her via email, I looked her up and I listened to some of her stuff and she was incredible. So I downloaded so much of her music right onto my phone, but I wanted to meet her. I wanted to know what it was like being a young, attractive woman out on the road, a solo act, just her and her saxophone. You know, she wasn't traveling with a band. It was her hopping in a van, driving from Omaha to Tulsa to Oklahoma City to Kansas, you know. And I wanted to hear who inspired her, much like the question you asked me. And, you know, regardless of if you're doing a show like yours or if you're doing a, a, a game show, the more questions you ask, the more gold you're going to dig up. Every question isn't going to be filled with, you know, uh, sparkling answers. <laughs> but the more you ask, you know, the more often you're going to get something that is. So when you ask about specific topics, uh, there aren't specific topics. But, you know, easily three or four times a week, I come across someone or something that I feel would make an interesting conversation for me to be a part of, and therefore an interesting conversation for my listeners to to take part in. Well, you also make a great point where if like if we're looking at someone's like bio or something, it's almost like limited on what they're saying about themselves, but you never know what you can get out of your guest and you're, you can hit a certain certain discussion topic or something about them that triggers like a, a great memory that they want to talk about. So I always enjoy when I get those out of my guests because it kind of, it makes me excited to learn something new or something I didn't know about them. Yeah. You know, that reminds me of something, uh, something Bob Barker once told me specific to game shows, but it, it applies everywhere. Bob said, you know, always take the time whether it's on television or with the touring prices, right. You know, that we've been doing now for 19 years, Bob always said, take the time to get to know the contestant, every contestant 
or in your case, every guest has a reason why they're there. Yep. And if I'm standing next to a contestant who's getting ready to, um, I don't know, play any number for a chance to win a trip to Las Vegas, I could easily say, okay, here's Ruth and she's going to play for a trip to Vegas. Good luck, Ruth. I could do that and I could get away with it and I could make it loud and, you know, have my arm around the contestant and do all the bells and whistles that a, that a good game show host could, should do. Or I can take a moment and I can get to know Ruth. And by the time I'm done asking two or three questions, we now know Ruth who just retired from the post office where she worked for 45 years. And Ruth has never taken a vacation. She's never even been on an airplane. Do we want to send her to Las Vegas? Now it's a whole new game. And everybody watching is invested in Ruth getting on that plane for the first time and going to Las Vegas and having a heck of a time on her first vacation in 45 years. So yeah, questions are the key to a magical conversation. Nobody wants a one-way chat. Nobody. It's not interesting for anyone. As you were pursuing your radio career, was there any other opportunities that you were searching for? Because maybe this was your next step to going into the TV business or that entertainment industry. Um, You know, radio, being on the radio, especially in St. Louis, provided so many side hustles, to use a, a current phrase. You know, it allowed me to travel a little bit you know, to go to take radio listeners to concerts in Dallas or Chicago or whatever. Uh, It allowed me to go to great concerts and get up on stage and introduce bands, you know, in front of big audiences. It allowed me to do a lot that kept me fulfilled. But as I was feeling fulfilled, there was progression. Um, After a few years, because of the ratings we had at nighttime, I was doing the seven to midnight show. And because of the ratings we had at nighttime with the 12 to 25 year old demographic, the teenagers, essentially, um, one of the local television stations took notice and brought me on to do small little vignettes, just little short clips in between some of their popular shows. So now I was doing radio with a little bit of television, you know, and uh, the television work allowed me to accumulate uh, some samples of, of my work. And, and that pushed me forward as the TV stuff grew, but I was, I always had, there was never a prize that I had my eyes on. There was, there's never been a finish line for me. It's always been a, okay, what's, what's after this? Let's keep going and see, let's see what's over this hill. And the majority of the time, what's over that hill is, is really gratifying and, and really fun. I'm at, I'm at the stage of my career and my life right now where I've been a very fortunate, I, I've lived a very fortunate life. Uh, I've got a great family. I've got my health. My career is, is everything that I wanted it to be and more. So, um, you know, the priorities have shifted a little bit, right? You know, for the past several years, I haven't had to look for something bigger or more. I love everything I'm doing right now. I love the Price is Right stage show. I love my podcast. I love the fact that people enjoy the books that I write. I've got, you know, a, a, a play project that I that is my labor of love that 
you know, when I wake up in the middle of the night, I come, I, you know, come in here to the home office and I can just, you know, I can turn on this little lamp over here and just do a little writing. Um, so everything is where it should be for me right now, but we all have our different, um, our different definitions of, of fulfillment. You know, it's just, uh, you know, what glass do you want to see overflowing, I guess. When did you feel that it was your big moment as a TV host or a gig that you got? Well, it was, uh, you know, it was definitely getting signed by E! Entertainment Television, you know, to to go from um, working in St. Louis to relocating to Hollywood and within a matter of two or three weeks being on the red carpet at the Academy Awards. Um, you know, it, it's... Uh, I went from being a voice on the radio in the Midwest to being a face on television in 12 different countries. And it takes, it takes a few months for you to resonate with people. Uh, but once I started realizing that people were watching me on television, that's when I knew that the, okay, radio is going to go back over here for a while because now we're doing this. So now I, I have to get really good at this. What kind of opportunities did you learn about yourself being a part of the E-Network? Well, the E-Network was wonderful in the early 90s because it was still relatively new. And it was certainly a lot smaller than it is now. I, when I came aboard, if memory serves, there were only four or five hosts um, on the network. And we did every show that they aired. So... Um, we were also, I, I, li- I always believe in giving credit where credit is due. We were led by uh, the president of the network was a gentleman by the name of Lee Masters. And Lee was probably the greatest uh, boss I've, I've ever worked for. Uh, Lee allowed us to, to, to fall down, you know, to, to blow it, to, uh, you know, to try things on the air. Um, and if they didn't work, there were zero repercussions. We would just get up, dust ourselves off and do something different the next time. Um, You know, as long as we did something different, if we kept going back to the same old model, you know, we would probably uh, get a note or two, but um, that was invaluable for me because in any form of creative endeavor, uh, you cannot tell another person how to do it. It just doesn't work that way. I could never come on and tell you, hey man, I watched fifteen of your past episodes. Here's what you should do. Doesn't it's not that's not the way this industry works. You know that's why artists are artists. And and make no mistake about it, hosting is an art form. It's my art form, and I'm passionate about it. And um, you know, I always went back and watched tapes of myself. Uh, never the next day or the same day, I'd let them simmer for a week or so, because otherwise you're in the same mindset you were in when you, when you did it and it's going to look great to you. But um, yeah, I would just, you know, constantly learn and constantly critique. Um, they say, oh, you know, we're always our own worst critics. Well, I, I wasn't a critic uh, so much as someone who analyzed, you know, I was like, Tom Brady watching game tape, you know, I said, Ooh, that worked. Let's do that again. This, that type of question. And uh, for instance, 
an open-end question gets a much better answer than a yes or no question. Yeah. Or, you know, I need to I need to practice a little word economy here with my questions because if I'm only going to have this celebrity for two minutes, I want to ask shorter questions so I can get more of them in there. So go for the jab and not the knockout punch. You know, all of these, all of these little things, as I'm sure you do when you listen back to some of your shows, you find out something that you're going to polish and and try to make shine brighter. And then you find other things that, you know, you don't ever want to see appear again. I think over time I've learned that I'm in the stage where I love learning. And if someone came to me and said, Hey, how about you try it this way? Or have you ever thought about doing your show this way? I'm like, yeah, let me try it because it can't hurt. Can't hurt to try something new. And I think what makes it for you, like for your show and our, my show, we have our own unique style and we do stuff that makes it work for us. But when people look at our show, they're like, oh, that's, that's what Alex is, or that's what Todd is, because that's what we like to do on our shows. I think so. And, and, and what I've, what I've learned over the years, what works best for me anyway, is, uh, you know, I'll go back to that phrase I, I dropped earlier, just being an exaggerated version of, of myself. Um, you know, I, I think when you, for, you know, when, for instance, when a stand-up comic and, you know, every stand-up comedian has his or her own podcast now, um, you know what you're going to get. It's just going to be, you know, one comic talking to another comic probably, and they're each going to be elbowing each other out of the way for the punchline. And, um, you're going to feel left out of a conversation like that. The conversations I like to have. Um, are conversations that people would have in their everyday lives. And I like to be the vessel that allows my subscribers to communicate with the people that I have on as guests. My guest uh, this week uh, is a guy by the name of Nate Martin, who is uh, uh, one of the most well-spoken experts in the world of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. And I wanted to have him on because I was reading about uh, this week is the Bitcoin conference down in Miami. Well, you know, I know what Bitcoin is, I think, but I don't know enough. Like, I, I, I get it, but I don't know enough to swing the bat and purchase some myself. Yeah, okay. I've got about 10 or 11 questions that would help me make a decision either way. Let me ask Nate. And that's what the conversation is. And all of my conversations are about 30 minutes. Uh, I don't go too, too long. You know, there are guys that are doing the two hour, two and a half hour formats and doing it really well. Joe Rogan, Mark Marin, they're all, they've mastered it. But if you think about it, when you're out with a friend or if you're at a dinner party or if someone's just hanging out with you at your house and you're talking about a particular subject, rarely do you talk about it for more than 20 or 25 minutes before you move on to something else. So that's, uh, that's my format. And, uh, and so far it's working pretty well with the podcast. We enjoy it and people seem to really, uh, enjoy adding us to the roster of shows that they subscribe to. And I like to keep the topics kind of all over the map. You know, I am by no means an expert in every topic we come on. Uh, we have on, but I like to think that I'm asking the questions that my listener would like to ask. Transitioning into the next part of your career, something that a lot of fans will know you as, as a game show host. Talk about getting into that part of the industry. What was that first show that you were hosting? 
Well, I was on a shoot in Barcelona, Spain for E! Entertainment Television. We were doing a, a, a shoot over there, and I had never been to Spain before. Barcelona has become one of the places that I love more than any other city in the world. It is heaven over there. Um, and this was the, the trip in which I fell in love with Barcelona. So I was going to stay three or four days after my, uh, my shoot. And I remember returning to uh, my hotel. I had been out with, with a couple of guys from the camera crew, uh, one big old Australian fella and, and then our executive producer. And, and we, had, we had been enjoying a few beers, you know, as three young single men will do in Barcelona. And when I got back to my hotel room, the little red light on my phone was blinking. You know, there were, there were no cell phones in 1997, 98, none that you felt obligated to carry with you everywhere. And certainly none that you would power on in a different country. I mean, you'd have to take out a second mortgage on your home to pay that phone bill. But uh, I, I picked up the receiver and I called the front desk and um, I had a note from my agent to call her. Well, it was late. So I called her the next morning and she said, listen, I know you're going to be in Barcelona for a few days enjoying a little R&R, but there's an auditioning, audition happening back here that I really think you should make. I, I don't think we should blow this one off and we can't reschedule it. It was for a producer by the name of Sandy Stewart. And Sandy and his father, Bob Stewart, are game show royalty. They've been behind the concepts to shows like Pyramid and Password and To Tell the Truth. And, and Bob Stewart was one of the creators of the original Price is Right. So when she explained that to me, it was a no-brainer. I, I got on the phone with the airline and paid whatever it cost to change my ticket. I don't remember what it was, but I'm guessing it was a pretty hefty sum. Nonetheless, uh, I flew back and I walked on the stage uh, over at Sony Studios, uh, the same stage where they shot at the time Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. I don't know if they still shoot there, but um, that was a heck of a place to do an audition. And I met Sandy and there was a that connection you feel with someone that you know, this is going to be a good, a good day. This is going to be a good friendship to, to nurture. But what is most memorable about that day is the fact that every aspect of a game show lit something inside of me, flipped a certain switch. You had the live audience, which I've always loved. You had the fact that it was one take. I don't like doing things multiple times. I think if you're passionate about what you do, you should do your best to get it done right the first time. Uh, Frank Sinatra felt the same way, by the way. So I, I'm, I'm in decent company there. But most importantly, I loved awarding contestants prizes or cash. You know, it doesn't matter if it's $5,000 or $1 million. I've had the pleasure of awarding a million dollars several times with a show, another show that I did with Sandy. But a little bit of money means a lot to someone. It goes back to talking about the woman from, you know, uh, the post office. You know, a little bit of $5,000 could pay off a credit card that's been hanging over your head. 
$5,000 could allow you to catch up on your car payments. $5,000 could allow you to buy a new television that now you and your kids can sit and watch Disney movies on. $5,000 goes a long way, not to mention what a new car would do or a new refrigerator that you've needed for years and years and years. And to be in that moment with this person when they receive this, this amount of money or that prize, you can't match that. There's no occupation in the world, save for maybe a doctor who cures someone who's very sick. There's no occupation in the world that matches that feeling of generosity, I guess, is probably the best word for it. But I knew, even if I didn't get that job, I knew that game shows were going to play a part in my future. Now, the show was for Hollywood Showdown, which Sandy thankfully and luckily chose me for. There were some great guys up for that job. But Hollywood Showdown ran for, I don't know, two or three seasons, a couple of hundred episodes, which led to Whammy, the all-new Pressure Luck, which ran for another 165 episodes, which took me to Family Game Night and the Price is Right stage show. So um, I, I've worked with a lot of awesome people in the world of game shows, but I credit Sandy for opening this door into this magical world, you know, where I get to be Santa Claus 365 days a year. When you were getting the hosting job for Whammy, did you like the new style of it compared to what it used to be like in the older version? Well, you know, I was only 13, 14 years old when the original version was on. So like everyone, I, of course, knew, come on, big bucks, no whammies, big bucks, stop. I knew that. And I knew what the whammy looked like. And I, of course, knew who Peter uh, Tamarkin was. Uh, so I thought it was a great idea that they were bringing it back. Now, we're talking 2000, 2001. So obviously, and Game Show Network was at its high then. They were all about original shows. You know, this was a network that had pretty much just been airing reruns um, their entire time on the air. But now you've got some new executives in there, Bob Bowden and Kevin Belenkoff and uh, some of these uh, real creative, true game show people that had some ideas. And I thought it was cool. I thought the, I thought the set was cool. Uh, it, it, I always tell people it was such, it was such a loud show. I mean, it was, it was really loud. The music was loud. The board was loud. The <laughs> audience was loud, but, uh, but it was, it was fun. And yeah, I liked the fact that, you know, Peter Tamarkin and I, we each did a pilot that day. Um, I did, I did, uh, I think Peter went first actually. And then I went second and, you know, each pilot took, I don't know, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, maybe an hour. And then, and we both, you know, just left. And Peter was such a gentleman, such a great guy. I mean, there was no competition, no weirdness. I mean, it was, people always ask, well, was it strange being there with him? I'm like, look, Peter and I had been going on auditions our whole lives. You know, you're always there with somebody you're up against. If you're going to let that get to you, you're in the wrong business. You know what I mean? So we both left and I think we shook hands. We might've even exchanged phone numbers if I, if I remember correctly, because I remember we, we did have dinner one time before the show 
went on the air, Peter and his, his lovely wife. Um, but we just left and we left it up to the focus groups. I mean, at that point it was in the hands of, you know, these, these focus groups, which to me, you know, I don't always feel great about focus groups. I find it hard to believe that eight people in a room who are getting paid 25 bucks are a, uh, you know, are a true, <laughs> it could be true spokespersons for, you know, an entire nation of television viewers. But listen, the game show gods, they were shining down upon me and, and it worked out the way it worked out. But Whammy was Whammy was the one I think that really put me on the game show map. Uh, a few people knew me from Hollywood Showdown, but you know when a show like Whammy comes back, it gets a lot of heat and a lot of PR, and um, and that was the one that kind of pushed me to the forefront of that arena a little bit. Now we have to be honest. When someone hit the whammy, did you kind of chuckle inside and like you loved it? Those I, reactions, I absolutely loved it. And here's why. Here's why I loved it because you know with 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 our version, we had the double whammy where there was a physical aspect to it. And you know, uh, yeah, I hate to see people lose money, but I love the double whammies because we had a kid up in the. We called it the boat, and it was this. Uh, it was this big, it looked like a giant treasure chest that was hanging from the rafters by these really thick chains. And inside was this kid named Paxton, who was the funniest kid. And he wasn't a small kid either. He was a healthy boy. And why they put him up there, I don't know. But he would sit up in that boat for the entire episode. And his job solely was to drop the grass clippings or the cotton balls or the spray the water, whatever it was. And there was, you know, it, it, it would, when that, when that double whammy would hit, I would see the boat start to, cause you know, he'd be reaching for whatever it was he had to throw, but, <laughs> but that made me, you know, that made me secretly rejoice whenever a uh, double whammy was hit on that show. See, that's the memorable thing about the show. Definitely that version was the double whammy because it hadn't been done previously. And plus the big bank and everything. When the new version came out the past couple of years, did you ever get a call about becoming the host of that? Or did you want to be a part of it in any way? Um, Well, look, I I didn't know it was coming back until everybody else knew it was coming back. No, I, I didn't get a call. But, you know, ABC was... You know, I, and I, I, I salute ABC for trying to keep game shows alive. You know, they brought back <clears throat> when they, uh, the one with Alec Baldwin match game. Oh yeah. And, you know, uh, I don't know if that one works so much. That one's pretty scripted, but you know, I, I've always thought Elizabeth Banks is great. She's always been one of my Hollywood crushes and, and the game, the game works really, really well. So, you know, listen, celebrities, you know, are celebrated individuals. That's what the the word means. So, you know, if you can get a a name that everybody knows, I mean, good God, she was in the Hunger Games, you know? I mean, if you can get someone like that, then by all means, rock and roll with it. But, you know, like I said, it goes back to the competition. You know, we, we don't ever feel that, you know, people always say, oh, this industry is so full of rejection. Nobody that's in this industry thinks that way. You know, it's it's about the gigs that you do get. It's not about the gigs that you don't. You know, it's like uh, it's like, you, you know, I just turned 51 years old. If, if I would sit here and think about 
all the girls that said no to me when I asked them out. Well, what good is that? I'd rather reminisce about the ones who said yes, you know, and, and so uh, so it's 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 all in your perspective, man. It's all in how you look at things. Talk about the moment when you were part of family game night, being a part of that show, but also becoming an Emmy Award winner. Well, family game night was was great. First of all, it was an awesome concept. I mean, life size, yeah. anything was great with me. And especially when you've got the Hasbro name behind it. So now we don't have to make up games and hope that the American public likes them. We know they like them because everybody's got a Monopoly game in their closet. Everybody's got Jenga. Everybody, you know, everybody's got Bop It for God's sake. And, um, and it was an opportunity to work with uh, a couple of guys that I've mentioned before, Bob Bowden and Kevin Belenkoff. I worked with them on Whammy. They were now at Hasbro. So there was that sense of familiarity. And at the time we did family game night, my kids were right in that age group. So I was, I was there mentally. I, I was, I was perfect. Now, you know, my kids are older teenagers now. They're almost full grown. Now I, I'd have to put myself there. I could get there, but you know, this was just like walking into my family room. And again, you know, to have that, uh, to have that audience. And in the later seasons, when we chose our contestants out of the audience, a la The Price is Right, well, to me, that made it even better because I've always said that game shows are the only real form of reality television for the most part. Not all game shows are, are, are real, obviously, um, you know, match game, but, you know, but it's, it's ours was. And, uh, and, you know, to be able to, to watch a, uh, parents and their kids make this memory together. You know, if you're a, if you're a family of four from Des Moines, Iowa, how many times are you going to be on TV in your life? And how many times are you going to be on TV with your whole family? Well, now they've got the video of this to watch, you know, for years and years and years. And the prizes were cool trips to Disney world and all this stuff. It was, uh, it was great. Um, and when I got the first Emmy nomination, it blew me away because we were on what was called the hub network. Yep. And the hub network is not NBC is not CBS. So to be nominated with Alex Trebek, rest his soul, uh, Meredith Vieira, who was doing millionaire at the time. Uh, I think Pat was nominated. Ben Bailey was huge at the time. So for our, you know, what I called for our little show, even though it wasn't, but for our little show to be getting that kind of recognition, we had already won. I felt like, holy cow, all I wanted was another season. I just wanted this thing to keep going. Um, and we did five or six seasons. I forget what it was, but over, I remember we celebrated our, our uh, 100th episode and then we went I think, I think we did like 102 or 103 total, but a hundred episodes, man, is a lot of episodes for an hour long show. And that show wasn't an easy one to do. You know, I mean, on TV, it looks like we're taking a commercial break in real life. We're taking down this giant, 
connect for basketball hoop. You know what I mean? And uh, it was quite a trip. So that was a hardworking crew, but to get nominated and then to get nominated the next year. And then I think I got, I think it was the third year I was nominated that, that I won Um, just to be at the Emmys was, uh, was a rush, you know, because 10 or 12 years prior, I was the guy standing outside on the red carpet asking the, asking the nominees what they were wearing, you know, (laughs) and now they're asking me. So that was, that was cool. That felt like another piece of the puzzle had been put into place and, you know, winning, winning the Emmy, obviously uh, everything changed that night, not only professionally, but uh, personally, internally, because as I, as I held that Emmy, and sometimes I still look at it and I still feel the same way, but as I held that Emmy, I knew that now I had nothing more to prove, nothing more. And from here on out, I can do things that I want to do instead of things that I have to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, it, it was, I, you know, he, it, it, I, I didn't go on autopilot by any means, but the reason for my decisions, professional choices, the, the, the choices that, you know, my agents made and stuff were different now. So, um, uh, so that was cool. That was, that was me. I think, I think a lot of people would, would say the same thing, but, you know, again, in, in a big part of that was, you know, I just, I just wanted another season. I wanted us to all make money for another year. There were a lot of people that, you know, fed their families for six, seven years because of that show. I think when people look back at your game show career, they, it kind of goes back to what we talked about being that exaggerated version of ourselves. You had so much positive energy <laughs> that, Everyone that's looking at home watching can feel the energy and we feel that we're a part in that audience just watching it. And that's the memories we have now. And I look back at my time. I love the Game Show Network. I mean, my mom and I always watch it, but it goes back to how you said that it's a bunch of reruns and it basically is a bunch of reruns. And I'm like, think about all these shows that I grew up, but thank goodness for YouTube because they have all the episodes that I want. Yeah, we just appreciate what the value you have given to game shows and the future of them. Uh, That means a lot. Thank you very much. And and, um, I I assure you now that it's just the two of us talking, I assure you that it all came from from a very real place. You know, I I I believe in trying to make people feel good as best I can. And look, I'm sure there are people that I've rubbed the wrong way. And there might've been a bridge or two that, that I've burned along the way. And, and, you know, I might've punished my kids a time or two that really pissed them off, you know, along the way, but all of it comes from a place of, um, and I'll circle back to my grandmother, you know, my grandmother had that way of making everyone feel like they had just won the lottery, you know, and a lot of politicians have that. Uh, I interviewed uh, President Bill Clinton a couple of times and he had that. I I mean, he, he could make everybody in a crowded room feel like they were the only person in there. That's a, that's a real skill set. A lot of CEOs have that. 
a lot of celebrities have that. But I think if I was able to make uh, game show contestants feel that way, then that's the real prize for me. You know, with the Price is Right live show, we're so, thank goodness, we're firing up a fall tour here in a couple of months, you know, because we've been down for a year and a half. But one of the things that I have to to remind myself from time to time is I get to do this every night, every night, you know, and I love it. And I look, I, you know, the 90 minutes on stage go by so quickly. The other 22 and a half hours of the day is like, oh, you know, I'm sitting here in this Holiday Inn Express. But um, I get to do it every night. But for the contestants, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah, once. And so I play these games and I host these shows through the eyes of the contestant. And when I'm able to do that, uh, when I'm really able to channel that, it makes a difference. It's like when you have when you have children, all of a sudden, man, Christmas is really cool again. And birthdays are really exciting again. And going to the zoo is something you look forward to. And the beach, you can spend days there, you know, all because you're looking at it through the eyes of someone who still views this as something special and unique. Yeah, we have to do that. And I don't care what you do for a living. If you have clients, if you have uh, colleagues, customers, or, or whatever, whoever you're catering to, that's got to be part of your skill set, man. You've got to look at this whole transaction or this whole event through their eyes. And I promise you, it'll change the perspective instantly if you're able to do it thoroughly and genuinely. It'll change everything, everything. I have to give this little story. So when I was in, you know how you get those awards, like most likely to do this. Well, mine was most likely to be a game show host. Ah. <laughs> and I always said, cause I was watching you and I'm like, I want to be like him. And in my college days, I hosted a charity event cause that was a huge thing for me. And we did a game show night and I felt I, I hit the moment for that hour, that two hours I was there. I felt it. And I always look back at it and remember those times. And when you, and I actually went to the prices right at the Fox theater when you were hosting and just seeing you in person, it was just like, wow, memories forever. And even just talking to you now, it's going to be a highlight. And that's what I love about these shows is I've been able to talk to people. I actually talked to George Gray, who's also from St. Louis. Yes, sir. Yeah. Two people that I've enjoyed watching and just learning. And that's just the pure joy that I get out of this. Well, thank you for that. And, uh, and, And I do mean that from the heart because, you know, a lot of times when you're just looking into a camera or speaking in front of into a microphone, you don't realize you know, uh, how many people are listening or seeing you. And uh, you, you certainly don't think about making an impact, but uh, there have been so many people that have made an impact on me. And I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that I could be there with you in spirit the night of that charity event. Hopefully we raised a lot of money together. Yes. <laughs> What's your favorite Price is Right game to be a part of when you're doing those live shows? Uh, I have two. Uh, and, and, uh, they're both, well, 
you know, let, let me let me say three. I, the Big Wheel yep. and Plinko, yep. I love because they're such magical reveals. You know, <laughs> when the curtain opens, and you've by the way, the Fox Theater in St. Louis, my favorite theater on the tour because of the nostalgia, you know, going there as a kid. And uh, I'll tell you a funny story very quickly about the Fox. So the first time we played the Fox, uh, I got my mom and dad tickets, obviously they were in the audience and uh, the Fox theater is where my mom and dad went on their first date, first date. Wow. Cause it used to be a movie theater. You know, they used to show movies in there. And my mom saved their ticket stubs from their first date, you know? So I was able to get the exact same seats uh, for my mom and dad to come see our show as they sat in on their first date. So can you, now the Fox is, the Fox has been reconfigured. It's a little bigger now, but you know, it's like a, you know, to be there on your first date, you know, with somebody that you don't know if I'll ever see this person again. And then, some 40 years later, you know, to be there watching one of your kids up there. I thought that was really cool. It's a very special place. But, um, uh, oh, so yeah. So the big wheel and Plinko, because I know how much the audience loves it. I, and I love hearing that pop from the crowd when the curtain opens and, you know, it's bam. Uh, as far as hosting and playing, I enjoy any number. Because there's a lot of room there. First of all, the audience really gets into it, shouting out numbers. Uh, but there's a lot of room there for me to have some fun. I can do the old Bob Barker fake. You know, I can, I can draw <laughs> out the pauses. Uh, there's a lot I can do. And it's, it's a really fun game. But I love the games of, of, uh, of skill, you know, like any number. You really got to think about the prices of these. Um, I like those as opposed to the games of chance where you're just, you know, throwing a dart and hoping for the best. So during this time you talked about after getting that daytime Emmy, there was opportunity to do stuff that you wanted to do or passion projects in a way. Uh What was those passion projects? Was it writing that book or was it eventually starting the podcast? Yeah. The first one was writing life in the bonus round. Um, which, which, um, I had been writing as, um, more as a journal, uh, while traveling with the prices, right. You know, thoughts and, and things that I wanted to share with my kids that back in 2012, perhaps they were too young to really, uh, you know, absorb and pay much or care about really. I mean, you're a kid, what do you care what an adult is doing, you know? Uh, but, it allowed me to kind of morph it into a real autobiographical piece, which went on to win the best autobiography at the Beverly Hills book awards. And, and, you know, I've been, that book now is almost 10 years old and I've never pocketed a dime. Every penny that we get, whether we sell it at Amazon or on my website goes right to local animal rescue organizations around the country. So that's, that's big for me. I I like, uh, I like going to bed each night knowing that's going on, but yeah, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it just solidified me more in the game show world and really told me, or really was just a sign to me that this is what I want to do. You know, I, I don't really want to do, uh, I don't want to do a reality show. 
uh, I, I want to be on shows that, that my family will be proud of, you know, I don't want to be on some show trying to, you know, tempt one person to cheat on another or, or get someone to lie or I, I, that doesn't, that's, that's, that's not my, that's not my thing. I'm not, I'm not interested. Um, and so, you know, it just, it narrowed my focus. So writing and, and this play that I'm currently working on, you know, now I, 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 I have the connections now to see that through to fruition and to see it on a stage. And, and that's what I want to do. And, uh, so yeah, it just, it kind of narrowed my focus in a positive way. Are you ever going to write another book or is that maybe something in the future when you, well, have I, that? I followed, I followed life in the bonus round up with another one in 2016 called the host with the most tales of a tattooed television personality. And that one is a continuation of the autobiographical journey. And that I'm pretty caught up now. You know, I, I haven't, I haven't lived enough for a third autobiography just yet, but you know, I've got, you know, my, my plans, you know, my, my three or four year plan is to, you know, get myself a little cottage on the beach and just, you know, rescue dogs a little bit and, and do some traveling around the world and uh, you know, get this play up and running, maybe do a one man show and, uh, and that'll be, that'll be awesome, man. I mean, if in 15 years, if I'm 65 years old and people are coming to see me for a one man show, man, that's, that's the top of the mountain, you know, and it, it'll be nice. You know, I know that my kids are, are off and productive and, and living their best life. And, um, you know, as long as my bills are paid, I could just have a little bit of fun. So what inspired you to get those tattoos? I was looking at like your hands and your arms and then your chest. And I'm just like, there's what's the meaning behind them? Cause way back then you didn't have any. No, no. I, I, yeah, I didn't get my, I didn't get my first one. Uh, I got, I, I, I had, I had quite a few during family game night. You just couldn't see them. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess I got my first one about 20 years ago, but it was way up here under my, you know, uh, and, and for a long time I could cover them with suits, but I, I always said, you know, I would never let tattoos, uh, affect me professionally. But then it got to the point where uh, I had casting people and producers saying, you know, hey, can you wear something that lets us see the tattoos? And uh, <laughs> and I, I've never had anyone say cover them up. So uh, I just kind of went, I kind of went all out. But, you know, I, I believe it's my own personal fashion sense that, you know, I, I like to wear black on black. I've been doing that for about six or seven years now on camera, black shirt, nice tailored black suit. And it looks good with the silver hair and have a little bit of color. You know, I, so I go black on black and I let the tattoos be the color that pops. And uh, you know, it seems to, you know, it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice niche. You know, I think the days of the traditional suit and tie game show host are pretty much in our past. You know, when you see a guy uh, come on television and he's wearing that, you're like, well, what year was this show shot in? Because, you know, even Drew, you know, on Price is Right, is getting a little adventurous with his wardrobe now. And I like it. I think it's, uh, I think it's going in the right direction. Is there a specific tattoo that you have has, that has the biggest meaning for you? Well, the first one, because it's my kids' names and my grandmother's name, you know, and uh, look, you never forget that first tattoo. It's, uh, it's, you know, I remember I got it. We were in Atlantic City, New Jersey uh, for The Price is Right. And uh, after the show one night, I, I was just roaming around Atlantic City. And 
at the time roaming around Atlantic city late at night, wasn't a smart thing to do. Cause I was on the wrong side of the boardwalk, but I found a little tattoo shop and I stumbled in and uh, I, I was, you know, I finally, I, it had been on my mind, you know, it's, it's kind of like when you see a new pair, like whenever I, I love wearing boots. When I see a new pair of boots, if I think about them for three or four days, I know I need to go get those boots. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and, and I had been thinking about a tattoo for a long time. So I, I went and did it and, uh, and then it was off to the races. <laughs> so when you're doing your podcast show, what do you like about the reaction that people have, or they give you, or like they tweet you or something that they review about your show? Um, just that they felt like they were involved in the conversation. You know, that's, that's the concept of the show. And, uh, I, talk radio had always interested me, but it was very difficult when I was involved in radio to even be considered for a talk radio show. I was uh, very young. I wasn't even, you know, I was late twenties, early thirties. And, uh, I, I didn't have the, I didn't have the years underneath me to get on and, you know, really do a, a talk show with any, um, you know, any credibility, but now, um, you know, I I've, I've aged and, and, you know, I've experienced life and technology has, has been right there with me. And now to be able to do it from, from anywhere, uh, is, is, is awesome. You know, I remember when I used to have a home voiceover studio and it cost a lot of money to put a studio together. You had to have the special phone lines and the soundproofing. And now, you know, you and I use the same microphone here. We can get that off Amazon and, yeah. and have broadcast quality. You know, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's, it's just incredible what, uh, what this, what, what this world has come to, but to be able to get the reactions from, um, from subscribers, you know, when, when they, when they hear a guest that they, particularly enjoyed. I like that. Or when I get feedback that, you know, I ask the questions that they would ask, that's good. That, that, that makes me, you know, these are just reinforcements that I'm on the right track with it, which is, you know, feedback is feedback is great. You know, that old saying it's cliche, but it's true. There is no failure. There's only feedback and I'll take, I'll take all feedback, you know, because I want my show to be the best it can be. Would you say your time during your radio career has helped you with being able to speak on through a microphone and everything? Oh, yeah. And not so much the tonality or the articulation, but pacing, um, interviewing, uh, knowing when it's not enough or when it's been too much. You know, all of that, all of that comes from radio. Yeah, radio Listen, radio was one of the hottest mediums for a very long time. I, I wish I could have done radio in the 70s, maybe even the 60s, you know, with these rock and roll jocks, the guys like Wolfman Jack and all these guys, you know, Wolf, Wolfman Jack, if you haven't read his autobiography, it is spectacular. I think everyone should read it. But talk about a guy who had a passion. His passion was hearing his own voice on the radio and he wasn't going to let anything stop him. He, uh, you know, he, he used to cross the border into Mexico. Uh, just to broadcast out of this little facility in the middle of the night. And, you know, that, listen, that's gumption. You know, I don't have any stories like that. But, um, but yeah, radio was, uh, you know, so, so powerful, so theatrical, so imaginative. And um, yeah, oof, man, I just, I, you should read that book. I think you'd enjoy that one, Alex. But it was, uh, you know, just a great, 
a great learning experience in, in many, many ways. And yeah, I still carry those tools with me. So what does the future look like for you? You talked about a few of the projects, but is there any personal goals that you want to accomplish in the next few years? Well, I just, yeah, you know, I want to, I want to travel. Um, you know, it's, I've always been an avid traveler and uh, the, the schedule of being a game show host definitely works in that favor, you know, with game shows, if it's on television, you know, we do five shows in a day, so we can do a whole season in about two and a half weeks, which is great. Uh, with the prices right live, we tour in the spring and the fall and, and uh, summers are usually open. Uh, but that allows me to travel a lot too. So that's a, that's a, a, a double win for me. Uh, but you know, I do love to, I do love other cultures. I love to see the world. I, I, um, I've always thought a, a dream gig for me would be, you know, something along the lines of Anthony Bourdain. You know, I thought, um, he was so incredible at, at what he did. Um, talk about someone that could connect with, with viewers and guests and uh, to be able to connect with so many cultures, uh, spoke volumes about the man. Sadly, you know, he was a, a tortured soul, but, um, you know, I, I, I want to get back out there. You know, I, I've been traveling, you know, I, I go to Mexico quite a bit. So I've been there three or four times this year already. And uh, once the world continues to open back up, I'll just, um, you know, I like to make sure that my family's taken care of and happy. And then I make sure that all my professional obligations are met and professional desires are met. And then uh, I like to pack my suitcase full of cargo shorts and old rock concert t-shirts and uh, hop on a hop on a plane. See, I'm glad you said cargo shorts because I was in a fraternity and everyone hated cargo shorts. And I used to wear them all the time. And I'd be like, um, this guy told me it's okay. <laughs> you know, listen, man, I, I've been wearing cargo shorts and, uh, you know, and, and my Converse chucks my entire life. You find me something that's, that's, that's bet more comfortable and, uh, and more utilitarian and I'll, uh, I'll switch over. But until that time, I'm sticking with what works. See, if you could have done a game show and worn that kind of outfit, you would be like, sign me up. That's right. That's right. Although I do like the feeling of a nice suit, too. That, uh, that does have its privileges. The final question I'll ask you, for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge? Here's the thing. <clears throat> Over the past two or three years, I've noticed a trend on social media, uh, online, whatever the case may be, of people putting far too much focus on their challenges. Your life is not defined by your challenges. Your life is defined by the things that make you feel good as a human being, things like your family, things like falling in love, things like reading a great book, falling asleep to some really nice classical music, walking your dog as the sun comes up, getting a job that you really love, knowing that your bills are paid, getting in a car that you know is going to get you from point A to point B without breaking down five or six times. This is what we need to focus on. These are the things that make your life special. 
Too much emphasis is put on the things that go wrong. Too much emphasis is put on feeling bad. Life is good. And the older I get, the more I realize that the things that stick out in my life, and this is coming from someone who's written two autobiographies, if you will, are the, the, the memories that come to mind are the good ones. I don't remember the bad. I have to dig for the bad. And I hope society doesn't take the turn where we have to dig for the good. You know, I tell, I tell, uh, I say it in a lot of interviews. I say it to my kids in my personal life. I, I say it to my friends all the time. I don't know how many days I have on this planet. I hope I've got quite a few more, but I hope whenever I do take my last breath, I hope people look at pictures of me or videos of me on YouTube. You know, maybe they go back and they listen to this interview that you and I just did, which was a great one. You were really good. I hope that they say, you know, man, look at this guy over here. That's a guy that had a hell of a life. And you can tell by the goofy game show host grin on his face that he enjoyed every minute of it. That's what I want. Last thing I, I want is for somebody to say, boy, think of all the challenges he overcame. Screw the challenges. It's about the wins, man. And if you only have one big win, or if you have a dozen big wins, it only takes one to call yourself a winner. And that's the that's the thing we need to keep in, in check here. Well, Todd, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. We are excited to see what the future has for you. And we've learned so much from your journey in the hosting and the entertainment industry. And we're excited to see what's next. Alex, I appreciate your time, man. Go Cardinals, go Blues. And uh, best of luck with your show and everything you're up to. You're a very talented young man. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe to all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode and video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.